my god. No. He wants it. He wants it. I spoke, I spoke to Abba about this. He wants it. <laughs> There's no way. What if we special order it with the logo and everything? Yeah, Riddle's. If Michael's in a Speedo, I'm calling the police. Riddle's banana, oh banana hammocks. It's not happening. I'll literally call the police. All right. Where is this kid? So I gave her Starbucks alphabet belonging in the Dow. Oh, Starbucks. That's a good one. And, and then they need to add an energy company. Just put Exxon back in. Put Exxon back or put ConocoPhillips or something. What about a Phillips 69? And then they need to take out IBM, take out uh, Intel. Am I right? <laughs> Exactly, Good enough. Hey, All comrades. Right? <laughs> right? Right? chance. So, Bob, very you guys are Stop when we're done. You've got some head of hair. Thank you. I, I don't have many redeeming qualities, it's but, I, but I do have a nice set of hair. It's like a... Uh, it's like, um, you look at it, it's like, it's, a, it's like a porcelain doll. No, but it's dense. Dense, like, yeah. Right? There's, there's full coverage. Full coverage. You so should see my, I used to have a head of hair my, like my that. My dad's almost 80. Same exact thing. Oh, that's good. that's a good sign. There, so. But doesn't it go should, by should your I mother's my, father? My hair. Yeah, no, it's not good. It's Michael not a good loves talking about hair. That's his icebreaker. <laughs> yeah. Is, if there's a if we're on a Zoom no, call I mean, and there's oh, another I ball, never realized, Michael, I never realized that he loves. If there's another well, ball, a, he goes, ball, "Hey, hey." If it's a bald. On that note, Michael, can we get you any other color hat other than white? Yeah, sure. Okay. Huh. Let's let's do that. Okay. It's just very very bright. Okay. Wait, you want to? He has to switch hats. Snapback. Oh yeah, I'll wear that. No, no, I can't wear. Nah. You you could you could go without you know. There you I know. Go. You heard no, what I said earlier today. No I don't know what you said. I don't care. It's I'm, an unwritten rule. If you're no, a dad, I guess I guess he needs the hat on. No, otherwise, otherwise, the glare the glare is even worse than the hat. Right? My head. I, <laughs> I love this guy. No, but look how look how ridiculous this is. No, it's not. It's Why not are you bad. so self-conscious about your head? You have I'm a nice shaped head. You know how many people head. have no hair and have a terribly shaped head? I have a great shaped head. I'm not self-conscious. It looks weird. It looks like a no. Like it does. No, it really doesn't. All right, cool guy style. That looks style. weirder. Now you look like a high school basketball coach. <laughs> high right. school basketball coach. Oh, a, a, a comedian called me that. He called you a high school wrestling coach. Wrestling he got heckled coach? from the comedian. Right. I got heckled. Wait, and what, what was the context? He said you look I, like a high school wrestling I, I coach. The guy up. was bombing. Was him. I walking to the, I don't know. Yep, yep. I got singled out. Uh, that's, that's the risk. All right. So is, uh, is Portnoy the greatest deal maker of our generation? He just... So let me let me lay this out for you. He sells his company for five hundred million dollars before taxes. Oh yeah, you're right, loser. <laughs> uh, they close the deal, and within a year of finishing the transaction, they sell it back to him for a dollar because they need Disney, and Disney wants you know nothing to do with Barstool. How about this? Let as, me posit you this: Is yeah. this a, a win-win-win? Like, didn't Penn win as well? I think everyone wins. Yeah. I think Dave now can run this company the way he wants until he, until he dies. He doesn't have to do anything ever again. Uh, Disney wait, now but, is but, in but, the sports but, betting business. And now that Portnoy didn't lose, but he can't he can't ever sell, and he can't have any sports book advertisers. No, he can sell. If he sells, well, he owes half well, the proceeds. No, I know. I'm not saying he can't, but now now he won't. And he can't have any fan no FanDuel no DraftKings. Okay, fine. So he, so he wins with the caveat. Penn wins because. They're but he doesn't need the Disney. sports. He doesn't need the sports book advertisers because he's he could sell high noon. Until but the I, but come I, I'm, I'm just get, making this up that that was probably their biggest advertiser. Uh, pre pre pen. Fine. Yeah. Agreed. No, everyone wins. 
I feel like it's and uh, Portnoy looks like a genius. Here's my great, one loser. Great deal. I think ESPN looks desperate. Oh yeah, thirsty. They like like why couldn't they start their own? Why do they have to buy one? Is this ESPN uh, Disney doing the How do you do fellow kids? I mean, I guess they had no choice, but it's surprising that ESPN had to partner on this. Uh, Draft DraftKings and FanDuel are a combined seventy percent of the the market, which I didn't know until yesterday. And who's the other th- or third? Like MGM, Caesars. They're tiny though. Is it, yeah, yeah, they're tiny right. and they're burning money. Like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. Does ESPN instantly become like 20 percent player just by virtue of the brand? I think this would be like betting into the TV, like with the, with like the new TVs. This would be like in the remote. No, but think about it. ESPN yes. can show. An NBA yes. game yes. and and bomb you with ads for ESPN bet in a way that nobody else can. Uh, like FanDuel doesn't own a TV network. So I think they're overnight, they're a player. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For Plus sure. all those ads just come right off the TV, right? Yes. Instead of ad- advertising on ESPN. That's a great point. They, they lose all that access. They right? lose. Yes. Uh, right. Where does FanDuel advertise now? Big Ten Network. Animal Box. Spirits. Or, or does ESPN have to allow them to advertise? So some kind of anti-competitive. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. But doesn't that mean that all the sports leagues, the NFL and NBA, have ESPN by the balls now? Like, you can't. When didn't they? Well, uh, they're <laughs> even worse, though. They have no negotiating leverage anymore because they're going to have to keep buying those contracts. Well, if you believe the press report. Yeah, you're right. If you believe the press reports, one of those leagues is maybe going to take, uh, take a stake in ESPN. That's like, smart. Mm. Like, they should actually sell a stake to the leagues. Like 5%, something. But don't you think at some point, like, one of the other players is going to come in? Like, Amazon's going to come in with, like, a, like an over-the-top offer for NFL? They did. I mean, they stole Thursday Night Football. Mm-hmm. And you think, that's, you think that's the end of it? No. And you've never watched a Thursday Night game again, right? I mean, I'm still watching them. They yeah. put, if they put Mahomes on, I'm going to watch it. I don't really care what Wait, channel so it's, it's on. So the Thursday Night games used to be on NFL Network, right? And now you have to watch a bit on, on Prime. Right? Is that the deal? I th- it was on NFL or? It was on NFL Network. I thought it was on NBC on Thursday nights. Uh-uh. Are you sure? I mean, no. What night does NBC have football then? Sunday. It's uh, Sunday night. Okay. And AB- who's Monday night? A- but ABC? they stole Al Michaels too in the process, yeah. Amazon. Uh, listen, I I think if you, if you could sell your company for half a billion dollars buy and then dollar. buy it back for a dollar, the details don't matter. Right. It's, good. I, it's, it's, a, good. it's a short seller right there. Perfect short it's sale. It's a perfect short sale. <laughs> That's true. You sold, sold, sold it at the top, he also, bought it yeah, back at zero. He round tripped trip Penn, like, perfectly. Like, that's, you know, respect. Yeah. Uh, anyway, congrats. Um, all right, how many minutes out are we? Are we looking good? Yeah, one minute. Okay. So, you, seem more, you seem more nervous than usual. You okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah? You sure? John, what do you think? Is Duncan a little day. frantic today? It's been an exciting one. Bob, that ETF, nope. Do you know what what the assets peaked at? Uh, he, he raised sixty five million. It's not terrible, uh, but it peaked lower than that because, of course, it lost fifty okay. percent. So, so do you know about the shush? No. So, is it Noble Absolute Return? That was the name of the ETF. Yeah, I think something like that. Launched and just really swung for the fences. Was shorting Tesla. Maybe was long like the SQs and went. I think I think the fund fell. The return was like six, down sixty in nine months or something. And he shut it down. Who is it? Whose fund is this? I don't know who it was. George oh, Noble. nope. George Noble. I don't yeah. know who George Noble is. I read about this yesterday, but I, I never heard of these people at it, all. I mean, it was, it was, he was going for Do it. we know anybody involved with this? I don't. How bad were the returns? I think it was down 60. Yeah, it was down 65% yeah. since the start of the year. But they said worst, like, we're Worst gonna... ETF uh, of all ETFs down 65% yeah. at one point. Tough. Listen, as you know, it's all about timing. It is all about and timing. And you can't control that. 
Right. You either you're either in it for the long game right. and you're gonna it's gonna play out over three or three, four, five years. Or you get lucky. Or you, you go all in on lucky and yeah. I'm also guessing losing sixty percent any cycle is probably not good. <laughs> but is that what they said they were gonna try to do? Lose sixty percent? No, they did not say no, that. No, no, <laughs> that was not in the perspective. But they said like we're gonna swing for the fences. Oh, I this mean, dude, be- the holders were nuts. You're not you, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we're shooting we're shooting for a capital loss right out of the gates. Yeah. It's, it's right there, it's top line vehicle. of the perspectives. This Goal of this fund is uh, to achieve capital. All right, let's do this. Let's go. All right. All right. Thank you, John. What episode is it today? Coming Friends, episode 105. 105? Oh, my God. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's episode of The Compound and Friends is brought to you by X-Trackers. X-Trackers by DWS provides investors with innovation, access, and value through its established range of ETFs across FX hedged equities, dividends and factors, China, ESG across equities and fixed income, high yield, and now thematics. X-Trackers recently launched its first three U.S.-listed thematic ETFs focused on innovative growth trends of the future, like U.S. green infrastructure, semiconductors, and cybersecurity. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes. That's X-Trackers by DWS. Hey, everybody. Welcome to an all-new episode of The Compound and Friends. My name is Downtown Josh Brown. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. Uh, first things first, the regulars. John is here. Duncan is here. Nicole is here. Rob is here. Sean is here. Dude, this is, your, is this your first sit-in? Okay, for people who don't know who Sean is, he is the guy these days, since Michael abandoned me, who makes me look really smart on television. I, I almost don't open my mouth without Sean supplying the information that I need so that I really sound as authoritative and as incredible as I do on TV. But that's mostly Sean these days, not Michael anymore. And only a little bit me. Cut off, is, cut that, Sean. is that why Michael reacted so badly to that chart this last? What are your thoughts? That was some lazy ass shit. That was terrible. No, he's jealous I of Sean. By that chart, You'll terrible see. garbage. Sean is going to move to New York. He's going to be a rising star within this organization, and Michael's going to get really catty. You'll see. <laughs> You'll see. I've seen it before. I've seen it before. I love on, you, Sean. Uh, I love you, Sean. All right, we're we're so hey, we're so we're so lucky to have you, Sean. Welcome to uh, welcome to the studio. Uh, ben Carlson's in the house tonight. Give it up Very to Ben. <laughs> Which we do your catchphrase. You have anything? What do you got? What? Wait, hold on. What is that? What, that was. That was. Loud. You have no idea what's going on here. Stop it. Give me your catchphrase. What's your thing? What do you say when you? Like Michael goes, "Hello, hello." What do you do? No, that's probably you confident in my assertions. Very, 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 very. My whole shtick is like there shouldn't be an intro for podcasts. And and yet I was about to say, Ben, you're talking. You know this is a show, right? There's a two. We're working on minute seven of my intro here. So, (laughs) (laughs) how's it going so far, Uh, ladies and gentlemen? Our guest today, the star of today's show, the star of today's show, and we've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Bob Elliott is here. Bob is the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds, an asset manager providing easier access to hedge fund strategies. Bob was previously the head of Ray Dalio's research team 
at Bridgewater. Bob Elliott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. How Fun. much of Bridgewater's returns do you want to take credit for now? Uh, all, you have all an open of, mic, All so. of the positive returns. Okay. Would yeah. Ray do what I just did for, for Sean? Would Ray ever do that for you? Uh, every once in a while, yeah. 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 In what outlet? <laughs> like on the phone with you, maybe? Yeah, okay. maybe. Or we're going to do an airing of the grievances for him working at Bridgewater. <laughs> oh. uh, before we, we don't have all day. You know? <laughs> actually, I missed something. Before we even get started, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Michael Sembalist, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he mentioned our show in his note, Eye on the Market. And he said, quote, I never do media appearances, but I didn't accept an invitation in July to speak on a video podcast. That's what we're called now, Duncan, a video podcast. He's a boomer. Uh, called The Compound, which is moderated by money manager Josh Brown. The reason I accepted, it's a long form, 90 minute show that allows for in-depth discussion and debate that does not occur in any other media I've seen. What a really nice, isn't that nice? So nice. Um, I listened to his podcast. He, he, he said he got a new mic because of this show. He got a better mic now. Yeah. He's he stepping was, up he was, his game. He was phenomenal. You know, nobody knows how we got it done, but put yeah. it to you, Josh. For sure. Anyway, Bob, tell us, tell us how great our show is. Now, so <laughs> let's, let's start with who the hell are you? Because I used to be on Twitter and you didn't exist. And now you're the only thing anyone wants to talk about. You are like a superstar. You're like out of nowhere. When did you like come to everyone's attention? Honestly, I I started on Twitter about a year ago. That's little, why. That's little, why. A little I didn't more know. than a year ago, because you know when you're in in the in the hedge fund space, you can't be out there talking right. about your positions and stuff. And I just I started it. The basic idea was I just had some friends, some old colleagues. I was like, I'll just write down my the stuff that's on my mind, just put it out there, so you know we could talk about it instead of it being over a text chat or something like that. And it started getting picked up. People were like, oh, that seems pretty interesting. And still to this day, all I do is I wake up in the morning, write what's on my mind, can I tell you commute home, can I tell write you what's on my mind. That's it. What you're describing is literally the way that everybody we like and respect in this game got started. Like nobody that we like look up to or nobody's like, I'm going to become an expert on the market and sell my on bullshit Twitter. to the— yeah, on Twitter, nobody, everyone that we like, including ourselves, is like, you know what? I have stuff to say. I have no idea if anybody cares. I just feel the need to write it down and put it out there, and let's see what happens. And that's like the most honest way, I think, into the business. So congrats so, on that. Thanks. I mean, I, I spent almost a decade writing. You know, Bridgewater's got a very famous thing called Daily Observations. Yeah. I was writing them, you know, a couple times a week which is basically the same the same spirit but a more institutional capacity and that's how I process markets that's how I think about markets is just basically see what's going on think about you know what are the questions the the topics the trades all that stuff that's on my mind and then just put it down on paper and twitter is such a great environment right oh yeah it's because, amazing i love because it it's it's what efficient <laughs> it's efficient you know, it's to the point. It's great for sharing information. Yeah, and and okay. you'll hit it. You'll hit it soon. Most yeah. of the people are are pretty good. Stick around. You yeah. know, I, make some like uh, big jumps in your career uh, from here. Like your unlimited funds gets to name a milestone. Oh, and once you get to a billion, you're, it's over. And for you'll you. see if you're still having as much fun. Sorry. So, how did, <laughs> sorry, so sorry. Bridgewater is not an easy place to get into. It's certainly not an easy place to rise in the ranks. Yeah. How did you get in there? It's like it's like 150 employees. Uh, well, back back when I started, it was, I mean. it was around 100, yeah, 100 yeah. employees, and it was uh, it was the challenger in the space. People thought, you know, systemizing macro was kind of an oddball idea, right? Most of the macro was like Soros and big bets, big swings, 
speculative positions. And and so, you know, Bridgewater was sort of on the outside looking in. And, you know, I was part of the small handful of investors that took Bridgewater from where it was then to being the incumbent. Uh, right. Which was which was uh, which was a great. I mean, what a great environment! Great time to be trading market. Was it your first job out of school? It was my first job out of school. Yeah. Just, when did you start? Uh, so there? I'm guessing you did not go to Queens College like me. I did not go to Queens College, although our co-founder went to Queens I College. Really uh, in, and, in another generation, though, a, a whole a whole other generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of respect for Queens College uh, graduates for sure. I'd done a lot of work in public health when I was in college and. Realized economics was what really drove public health outcomes globally. And so I was like, oh, I'll go there. I'll basically get a master's degree in economics. You know, they'll pay me for it, which is a pretty good deal. And, uh, yeah, I stuck around for almost 15 years, you know. From, from the time that you started at Bridgewater until until you departed, it went from being like kind of a scrappy hedge fund to the pinnacle, like, in terms of star. like – uh, performance, culture, like lead, like uh, the renown that the firm. What was that like being on the inside of arguably the most successful hedge fund in history, or one of one of them? Let's say top five. Uh, what was that like to no, it was witness? Incredible, be a part of incredible growth, incredible time in markets, the financial crisis, European debt crisis. I mean, all of these different experiences that I think shape a lot of how I think about the world, think about markets. Being on the inside, essentially, when the financial crisis was happening, talking to regulators, banks, insurance companies, seeing how that played out. You know, it it, it was about as fast as you could learn about markets, uh, about, a, you know. That's a, best, one, to, that's a one in a million opportunity, maybe yeah, one in a billion opportunity. How was radical transparency for you? Fine. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, drama around it and sort of like intrigue about it. Like all it is, is it's not that much different. So it's than it's any, overblown. Sorry, any, Bob is referring to the culture at Bridgewater, which notoriously is like something people from the outside like to make jokes about. Well, because it said that like, it's been reported that there are like baseball cards on employees and everybody's being graded and everything's recorded. Is is that overblown or is that is there truth I, I think, there? Like at, at its core, it's just no different than any other high-performing organization. When you get people in who are running money seriously, you sit there and you have direct conversations about what's going on and you don't screw around. And, you know, whether you look at, Netflix and what they write about or or Bridgewater or other high-performing places. That's basically Ritholtz, what it is. Ritholtz Wealth. Let me read this to you. This is Matt Levine. I never understood how Bridgewater gets any investing done, but of course there's a computer that does the investing. One stylized model for thinking about Bridgewater is as run by the computer with absolute logic and efficiency. In this model, the computer's main problem is keeping the 1,500 human employees busy so they don't interfere with its perfect rationality. So all the all the the games of like grading each other and recording meetings is to make sure nobody accidentally touches something on a keyboard. It's funny. It's Matt Levine, um, but like take that apart. It's not. It's not uh, obviously mean, I, not real. I, I would. Yeah, there was there was a core of folks who who were running the money that you know you probably have seen. I was part of that group, and yeah. uh, you know. I, I I hate to say it, but it's a it was a whole lot less interesting than all all of this intrigue that you read about well, on the internet. Imagine they start it writing articles one day about like 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 what's the mo if that's Bridgewater model, what's the model here? <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess no, nothing looks good if reporters or columnists are like deliberately trying to make fun of something for yeah. Know. I mean, what what. It, how interesting would a story be? It's like a bunch of people working hard to try and figure out how to trade yeah. markets. 
and doing you know, Excel all day and and doing that every day. Like, you know, that's not that interesting. It's not that interesting a story, but you know, closer to the reality than, uh, is it, is it everyone there a type A personality though? Was that, is that really how it is? Or is, is it a wider range of people than uh, you would think? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say that. I think the, the thing that the, the best people who are there are people who are just incredibly intellectually curious and just fascinated by how does the world work and not, I mean, about markets and economies and all that stuff, but just broadly, you know, they're, they're broadly thinking about everything that's going on. And so that, that curiosity is what creates the questions, which creates the, you know, the differentiated insight, which you have to have in order to generate alpha. That That's really a, at the core. I, w- I want to start today with uh, global macro in general as a, as an, I guess it's not an industry, it's a style of investing. Um, but it's also kind of like a, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a, also a style of being on Twitter or being on social media or writing newsletters. It's just a, it's, it's a persona. A, it's a persona almost. And you, you break, you broke the mold. You're iconoclastic in this way, in this way. It seems to us knowing very little from the inside, but from the outside looking in, most of the people who have this specialization in global macro seem to be bearish most or pessimistic or f- overly focused on everything that probably will go wrong. Are we wrong in thinking that uh, from the inside? Are there many more people who are more pragmatic and optimistic or do we have that about right? Like well, from, from I, your experiences? I think when you, when you run money from a macro perspective, you have a lot of, uh, you, you've studied every crisis, every, yeah, every the, hard time, gig. every problem yeah. that could emerge. Right. So even though of course, like, in general, investing in assets should do you pretty well over time, right? The big thing is to watch out for those key times when things aren't working. Well, well. that's when you make the most money. Which if is you're when good you at make it. when when you're most differentiated relative yes. to traditional passive investing. And so I think that's really that's really the focus is how do you, you know, do fine in times when assets are going up and everything's kind of going up, but then when the chips are down and trouble emerges, how do you preserve the capital? How do you see it before it happens? And how do you preserve the capital? And so in that sense, I think there is like what might come across as a bearishness, oh, it's a bearish, bearish perspective, oh. or or an angsty- what could, what, cons- could go wrong? what could go wrong? What am I seeing that no one else is seeing? My theory is 2008 broke a lot of brains and so many people missed 2008 happening that they said, that's never going to happen again. Now I'm never going to everywhere. miss a crisis that big where the stock market falls 60% and the economy and financial system are teetering on the edge and I'm going to call the next one. And well, I think, think about what it did for the people that did that didn't not miss it. Yeah, you became a celebrity. It's asymmetric. Michael Lewis wrote right. about you. you they were goaded. Yeah. Yeah. They would be goaded so, so, Bob, one of the things that, I, that I'm attracted to you about your Twitter account and your persona is that you broke the mold with this because you seem to be objective. I don't categorize you your views as pessimistic or optimistic, they're they're objective, at least as objective as you could be. There's no agenda. And I think from the point of view of getting as a money manager, especially if you if you have the ability to short or or avoid corrections, if you miss it, you look like an idiot. How did you not see the risk coming? What am I paying you for? And if you're bullish and right, okay, whoop do you do? Yeah, I could just every, buy, everyone made money. I could just buy right. the spy. What yeah. why am I paying you? But if you miss a bear market, you're an idiot. Why am I paying you? Yeah. Well, I think I think the main the 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 main thing is the way. How do you generate long term high risk versus return capital? Or high return versus risk cap, capital is by uh, you know going with those times when things are buoyant, 
but not getting over your skis and leveraging all in and then protecting on the downside. And if you can, you know, if you can cap your losses to being even a third of what traditional index investing is, then you're going to be wildly successful over the long term, right? Yeah. And that's and that's really, if you look at what hedge funds in general do, like hedge funds are not, they have this sort of, this this view from the outside that they're like, you know, gunslinging, high vol people. They're like incredibly- Some are. Some are, but you know, there's 3,000 of them, you put them together and they most, you know, the, the median uh, manager is uh, incredibly boring. Uh, risk managing and trying to generate that seven, eight, nine, ten percent return without too much volatility. Well, the thing is, though, the time. outliers are the ones that cross over into mainstream or pop culture. Like Ackman is not boring. Soros is not boring. Einhorn is not boring. They speak. They write. They appear places. They do selfies. But that's what the. So when you you talk to people that don't know anything. You say right, hedge fund manager. Guys, that's yeah. who they of see. Of course, but right. th but those are ten people trying to be famous out, out of three thousand, right? Out of three thousand that are you know incredibly. Although Ray doesn't run away from the camera, I mean you know. So it's one of the things about Bridgewater, the testament to Bridgewater's culture, and why I've come around and I like not that I ever didn't believe, but like why I actually do believe that there's something special there. Can you think of another hedge fund where the main guy left? And the successor stepped in, and things actually stayed good or got better. Um, I don't. I don't know where you stand on the the Kremlinology of the whole thing, the politics. But like Greg Jensen did not f it up. The I Fresh guess. Prince when they changed moms. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great example. So that's a really good example. Not a hedge fund. Vivica. No, Vivica. I don't. I, I don't know if you want to like really an answer that, yeah. but like Viv. I'm kind of onto something. Is there another fund where that's that transition has happened and the world didn't fall apart. Oh, I, I mean, I haven't been there in five years, so I don't know all the palace sure. intrigue. Forget all that. Like that. Just the, you know, but the I results. Think, it's still I standing. Think part of what I'd say is that the benefit of approaching things systematically really does help in that process, which right. is— Well, the all-weather portfolio, that's about as boring—I mean, that's an index-boring-ish portfolio. For sure, for right. sure. Yeah, the all-weather portfolio is very you say boring. that shit now, and then it's 1937, <laughs> and you're going to be really glad— <laughs> That you had that boredom, it's going to be the That's right. That's what I'm kind saying, though. Like you mentioned, the gunslinger thing. Like the all weather. If you, uh, I mean, people pay more attention to the macro portfolio, I think. But that that's a pretty that's a allocation based, div broadly diversified, rebalanced. I mean, it's pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea there is, look, build a strategic portfolio that doesn't take a whole lot of effort to manage. Right, that's going to protect you in, in a lot of different environments and. And Bridgewater's run the all weather portfolio. There's RPAR, the ETF. Is the all weather the largest fund at Bridgewater? Uh, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Okay, but it's like—is it the flat? It's the flagship, right? Uh, Pure Alpha is Pure the, Alpha is the, the flagship. Is the, right? uh, is the okay. macro fund that that, that one's people, probably more fun. People are looking at let's, yeah, uh, okay. the Alpha fund. Okay, well, let's talk markets. We got right. we got CPI report today. This is a great chart from Bespoke that I think I don't say I think I knew this. Inflation had been falling year over year, uh, but I I didn't realize that it was like really an outlier in terms of the num the consecutive number of months where the year over year reading was lower than the previous month. It's a full year. It's 12 months. Pretty wild. Yeah. It ended today, yeah. but pretty unbelievable. Bob, you tweeted today, maybe a good jumping off point for this, elevated inflation will persist as long as nominal wage growth significantly outpaces productivity growth. Wage growth data today 
shows 5 to 6% wage growth on a matched basis among those with the highest propensity to spend, too high for inflation to durably fall to target. Wow, that's um, a, that's pretty boring, isn't yeah, it? Unpack this. Look at this engagement, though. Look at this. But Bob, well what done. do you what do you define as elevated? Like, do you think three percent is elevated? Or well, I, th I think the uh, you know the Fed's targets too. So anything above that, you know, anything above that, you know, they they have room to move to two and a half and stuff like that. But like, look, the Fed needs to make sure that inflation is not three, four, or five. Because right? the, the thing, if you look at, I got data going back to nineteen fourteen, and you could see I don't sorry, I'm up there. But back in the 20s and 30s, it was wait, the historical long-term average over 110 years is 3.3. Right. So that's like the law. So why do people think that 3% is so nah, high? But because at 3%, you start to get the trouble with 3% and the trouble with moving above 3% is that you start to get two main problems, which is one, it increases the volatility of inflation, which yep. increases the uncertainty about forward investment and reduces long-term productivity right? Medium-term productivity, which is really what the Fed's focused on. That's why the inflation mandate. So you there. think if it's above three, it's harder to control the volatility. It, it is harder to control the volatility. But why does that, can you unpack how that uh, impacts productivity? Well, because a critical component of long-term investment is having a good sense of what your cash flow is. Do you define productivity for the audience? Yeah, productivity. It's just, it's basically, you know, investment that creates a certain amount of output per, you know, unit of per, of a person's time, Yeah. right? And so that means factories, that means, you know, roads, that means intellectual property, all sorts of stuff. And in order to figure out, I mean, look, there's like thousands, tens of thousands of these analysts sitting around in their spreadsheets figuring out like, here's what the cash flow is going to, I'm going to spend, you know, my RRR, I'm going to spend a million bucks today and here's what my cash flows are going to be in the future. Well, it's a whole different story if you don't really know what the cash flows are going to be in the future, if there's volatility there. Right. If it was 5% forever, we'd be fine with if that. If it was 5% and certain to be 5% forever, then we'd be fine with it. But the problem is that when you get, when you move from a volatility around one and a half to two and a half to say three, well, three can become five or six or seven. The uncertainty. And that uncertainty yeah. is what creates the harm to the economy, the long-term drag on productivity. You can't budget. Capacity. You can't figure out what to pay people. Right. You almost could become frozen stiff. Like I'm not, I'm not investing in name it capex inventory whatever until I feel better about until, what's going on. I mean, essentially, what happens is the risk premium of all projects rises, which means projects that would have otherwise been made a lot of sense in a low stable inflation environment now they look riskier. They look riskier, right? Because okay. you have to factor in that, so your cost of capital, your hurdle rate, all of that stuff goes up. That means that. You're doing less investment, which means that, you know, the economy is less productive. But time. isn't nominal wage growth, uh, John, chart back on, please. Isn't nominal wage growth coming down, maybe not as quickly as you would like it to or the Fed would like it to? Well, I mean, take a look at that chart. Like, has it come down? Yeah, it's not Let's at describe six and a half. This is median wage growth, smooth three-month average. Versus it's still pretty. So it's still it's still well above. So this is what five and a half percent. Five, five and a half yeah. percent. And this is the Atlanta Fed wage tracker. There's a bunch of different things. Dude, median wage growth five and a half percent is disruptive. To yeah, business. This is Strong. where the normal person on the street looks at us and says, you guys are nuts. I want higher wages. So explain to like the they regular person. They want higher person. wages until they go lease a car. Right. And see what that shit costs. And then it's like, oh, maybe this isn't great. The average car is $730 for a new- Can we, can we admit rent. though that higher Crazy. inflation has caused a positive- You saw that yes. the UPS thing this week of they're giving $170,000 plus be with benefits or whatever. Yes. Like haven't we had some positives from a volatile situation? Yes, but the money, the cost is somewhere, is somewhere else. The be it's, it's trade-offs. Yes. I'm okay with those trade-offs. 
Right. I well, I think I think the main issue is that the prices have risen faster than the wages. Yes, that's right? why people are still and so not happy. People are actually wor- you know meaningfully worse off today than they were three years ago, and that's totally normal. Anytime you have one of these inflationary cycles, the prices rise, and then oh, the it takes wa- a while the for the wages to rise. Right. Have the you guys wages don't start. all your wages yeah, yeah, for yeah. everybody in the in the building. Still, right? don't, don't get started. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> what are we doing here? No, it's uh, about you, Bob. <laughs> no, wait, but, but real real wage growth just went positive. But I'm, I'm guessing if you were to if but you were to do it cumulatively, right. cumulatively, right. it's definitely lagged. That's right. For sure. That's right. And that part, just it, important to recognize that the level of prices, particularly um, you know, food and energy and things like that, most significantly impacts the the lowest wage earners because they're spending on All those goods, right? And, right? and they can't change, you know, whether you buy a $700 a month car or $600 a month car, you got wheels that takes you where you need to go. If you got to buy your food, buy your gas to get to your job, like you don't have a choice. And so that's why it's, in, there's no more regressive tax than inflation. But this time, the lowest income workers- Regressive meaning there is no tax in the economy that more- uh, specifically hits the lowest income earners. Exactly. But, exactly. But, but wasn't this wasn't this time unusual in the sense that the lowest income workers actually had the biggest nominal wage growth? Sure, after but they're being held back for but 20 after years. being held back for okay, years. But, plus the fact that the prices have still meaningfully affected. You're saying this is every time though. This but is it, the cadence of all, it. Always, right? Because those people who are most sensitive to price rises are those people who who have to spend on a certain basket of you goods. You see no how the UAW what? opened up negotiations? Last week with the automakers, they said, let's start with a 40% uh, wage hike. That was That's their opener. Uh, and then a 5% rise every year for the next four years or something. Yeah, it reminds me of the good it's old like days punch, in Detroit. Punch them in the face as, as your first uh, negotiating tactic. That's right. That's right. And, that's, and that gives you a sense. Like, that's all catch up, right? Everyone's still facing the rising costs and they need – the wages need to catch up. And so when we look at that inflation chart and we tick 3%, well, just think about all of the additional negotiations that we have, all the people who haven't had their wages rise, right? All the people who, you know, they need a year or two years or three years for those wages to rise. In pop culture, all the great movies about labor took place in the 70s. Not They didn't come out in the 70s, but like uh, mid-70s to early 80s. It's not coincidental. Like that's – and let's put up this Jeff Kleintop uh, chart, John. He says, it's funny how history rhymes. You're looking at U.S. CPI year-over-year change, 1966 to 1982 versus uh, today, 2013 through 2023. And he's basically overlapping them. And it could be an identical rise and fall. I'll take the under on this one. You take the under on what? It's so, not going to look like this? No. Well, in the, in the, in the mid-70s, you had this monstrous spike. And then it came down. And then it, it re-accelerated. I, I don't, what do you think would have to happen? for inflation to reaccelerate? I think probably, I mean, what happened here, which I think is specific, this is oil related, somewhat indicative is, well, you didn't have the the second oil shock until that 78 and 79 acceleration. I think the most interesting point is the 76 and 77 period where you did see that bounce up in inflation and it was stable at too high, right? It wasn't surging. It wasn't extreme. Yeah, the absolute this levels is, are way this higher. Is an, yeah, this yeah, is an oil embargo. This is an oil embargo. This is specifically the Saudis and the Iranians holding back oil from the market because of a war with Israel. But then that kicks off something bigger in the economy. But it's like it had a, a root cause in the same way that we were going to have inflation no matter what this time. 
But what really kicked it into gear was Russia invading Ukraine. Like, undeniable. Um, you so, know oil prices would have to go to to match the 70s on a magnitude level? 300. So in the 70s, it went from 2 to 34. So to match that now, it would have to Whoa. go like 60 to 1,000. $2 to $34? That was the 70s. So, so we'd have to go to $1,000 a, a barrel yeah, yeah, to match the so 70s. The, le the levels aren't the same. But I think the dynamic is the same in the sense of once you get that inflationary impulse into the economy, what you get is people start to reset their wages, negotiate for the higher wages. And there's spirals are not a thing. Spirals are a thing in emerging market crises. In developed economies – Spirals aren't a thing. What the wage? The wage price, price spiral. spiral. You, don't, you don't think that it's that's not, a real phenomenon? It's not, it's not a phenomenon in terms of what's going on in the U.S. But it, doesn't that make the '70s unique, though? That was like the only time that happened. Well, what I'd call it is like maintenance of elevated prices, right? What happens is prices rise, people negotiate for higher wages, and then when they negotiate for higher wages, they increase their nominal spending, and it's and it maintains. This is this is a maintenance of elevated inflation. And so you see that chart of the wages at five. And to be clear, you have to compare it to productivity, right? So the wages are at five, but productivity has been as weak as it's been in decades. So productivity has been measuring, zero. Do we have a measuring problem with productivity? Well, I don't I don't think so. We're not counting the right stuff. Well, I think, first of all, a lot of us- They're not even counting tweets. A, a lot right. of us, right, have, uh, a lot of us enjoy a better- Maybe a better life experience. Who knows? The hedonistic the, adjustment. What is that called? Well, no, no. It's consumer Hedonic. surplus. That's Hedonic. The, that's the thing is we mostly yeah. experience consumer surplus, right? We're not actually, you know, I write a lot of tweets. It's like nobody's paying me for it, right? I'm waiting for my check from Elon. You yeah. know, I'm getting my five million engagements uh, a month and no check in my in my inbox here. Yeah. Are you a, a Twitter Blue subscriber? I, I am. I've, so you should be. I'm paid. waiting for it. I'm okay. waiting for my hundred bucks to go buy a sandwich, <laughs> right? right? And but I'm not getting paid for it. So you're you all are enjoying the benefits of you know insights and knowledge, so, entertainment. And how much GDP have we established as a result of that? None. Zero. Like we've, you know, there's a little bit of GDP with those Cheech and Chong, you know, gummies that are on uh, advertisements. That actually might be detracting from. But GDP. I think yeah, probably. Yeah. Is. But so, but, it, but so, there, so, there, so, so there's activity that's not necessarily activity, economic activity, which is consumer surplus activity, beneficial. We all are better off for it. But who is paying what for it? And that that's the real issue. Okay. So, so I would like to ask your take on wages. I would defer to you, obviously. But in my estimation, most of the wage gains are behind us. The reason why I say that is because, or the, or the line share, when you look at the chart of, I think the Cleveland Fed might do this, job switchers versus job stayers, and you deconstruct the wage gains, the job switchers chart, as we all, the great, was it the great resignation? Whatever it was, the job switchers chart went parabolic, and then it came all the way back down. So what would cause, now they might, they might stay elevated, but what would cause, again, a potential reacceleration. Like, haven't employers uh, digested most of that? We're going to have these the quiet quitting stuff continue. Or nah, the I don't think the so. jolt spikes. Hey, guess what? Guess what? So, the, my train today was packed, 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 packed. WeWork is going out of business. Amazon just put out a really not nasty uh, and a pretty aggressive letter. Come back to the office. Uh, a lot of these these office property rates are doing pretty well off the lows. People are coming back to work. Yeah, sure. Well, isn't the biggest difference between now and the 70s that there was way more union power back then? And sure, there's some union power being exerted right now by some big companies, and that's happening, but nowhere near what we yeah, saw it's not back the then. Irishman. We're not blowing up taxi cabs. Yeah, but yeah. But, but that I mean, inflation was double, you know, in the high yeah, double digits. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, 
I, I think the question is, can we see persistent 5% wage growth in this sort of environment? So that's what you're asking, well, my, my right? Until is- you start to see significant labor market weakness. And I think the answer is like, yes. Like, why wouldn't – what about and – and this is what – when you get these inflationary shocks, right, the thing that determines – whether there's persistence is whether labor markets are tight and labor markets are tight. And if you who read my tweets on secularly a week, tight, secularly <laughs> tight every, every Thursday, labor market secularly totally tight. I'm a fan, <laughs> but, but my point is if employees were going to go to their employers and say, listen, I can't afford to live. Okay. Hasn't most of that been done? Here's an analogy. But, that's, but the, look at the level of real wages is down from where it was before. People are still, Behind. Understood. But employees, so we spoke all last year about how it was actually a good thing that for the first time in decades, labor had the upper hand over capital. That dynamic is changing with not that any employee is going to their employer. Hey, headline, it's not CP- across the board. headline CPI is 9%. I want more money. But with, with inflation coming down significantly, they don't have the same leverage that they did a year ago. Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, the levels matter. They're still behind. And so they're still negotiating. And that takes time, years to Yeah, I'm not through. saying it's over. And number two is, it's. Tr- I, I think people are often confused about the labor market. Like, we had a labor market 18 months ago that was like the equivalent of a labor market that was like a 2% unemployment rate. I mean, it was so hot, right? It was scorching hot. And so now we're looking at a labor market that's like, you know, hot, right? Tight. Right, you know, not 2022. And, not 2022, which yeah. was the most extreme, yeah. tight, Hot so still, labor market so we've still ever seen. Too hot, but not extreme. Still too hot, but not as extreme. And okay. I think people are confusing the difference between you know those two levels. The labor market today looks nothing. You know, is so much better than what it looked Dude, like. There might be economists that think somebody takes the CPI report and waves it in their boss's face, theoretically, but in practice, I don't think that's the thing that happens. I like I I you know I don't so I don't think that you'll get like it'll re- it remain tight for that reason. I just think the demography. We have no immigrants, legal or illegal, for six years. It's a really important component of the service industry, whether we want to admit it or not. You had a whole bunch of people die and get really sick. You have uh, the boomers not— They're retiring. But then you see labor force participation rate uptick in the July report, meaningfully. And you know who it is? I know. I'm asking. Do you know? Well, most it's, most of the people who are coming to the market are the prime age, dude, right? It's no, who's rejoining the labor force? Yeah, it's women. It's f-ing women, twenty five to thirty four. They have kids, and because of remote work, they can yeah. also work. It's not prohibitive anymore. It's an amazing thing. It's great. I think it's great for America that the not only is the labor force participation rate ticking up, people are coming back to work. It's people that a generation ago could not have come back to work. Because they have a five-year-old at home, and now it's not that way. So there, there are, to your point, there are silver linings of a really hot labor market and really high, you know, wage growth. I have a market question for you on this. So I agree with you behind like the psychology of inflation. Just the longer it's here, the harder it's going to be to get rid of. Why doesn't the bond market care? The ten-year is still at four percent. That seems high relative to two years ago, but relative to history, four percent is still very low. Like yeah. why, why is the bond market not cared yet? Well, I, th- I think um, there is uh, th- there's this basic sense that inflation is going to go back to 2%, right? Like real yields have moved up a reasonable amount. So you think they're giving a lot of credit to the Fed or faith in the Fed here? Well, I think, you know, everyone talks about the bond market as the smart money. And I'm reminded of uh, the bond market dynamics in 2009 and 2010. I don't know if you guys remember that 
as vividly as I do. But in that period, the bond market basically said, look, we're going to get a return. We're going to get a normal cyclical bounce coming out of the financial crisis. And right. Instead, we had 10 years of very weak yeah. balance sheet recession, right? Yeah. A balance sheet, a traditional balance sheet recession, a deleveraging as it's sometimes called. And the bond market basically priced in, we're just going to go back to what we've always expected, right? And it took a lot. It took years for that set of expectations to reset. And I think we're basically seeing the same thing happen today in the bond market, which is, you know, I, I, I joke that all the bond traders have typed in 2% into their Excel models for, you know, break-even inflation. And that, then now they're trying to remember, oh, yeah, actually, that's a thing that moves around, right? That, combined with the supply-demand dynamics, puts together something that's creating that upward pressure on bonds. So is that a big risk to the market then? If we see, like, the 10-year and 30-year go crazy, I know they have, they've been going up and down in the last couple of weeks, and they took off and came back in. Well, the 30 years now at four and a quarter. We're steepening. We're, we're steepening. Right. So we're, getting a, we're getting a bear steepening. It's but dis- is, that, is that a long-term trend where if you saw the 30-year and the 10-year really move meaningfully higher and, and start to price in higher inflation expectations, that's a big risk to the market? I think so, yeah. And I think part of it is not just a risk to the market. Part of it is that that's what's required to cool down the economy, right? Because the first – what we have right now, the economy is too hot, right? The Fed is tightened, but basically they've said we're out for the next six months. So how, but nonetheless, you know, Atlanta Fed GDP, which is probably overstated, Chart on. Chart on. is running We're at, go there now, is, you know, is running at 4%, right? We have incredible, you know, the unemployment rates at three and a half percent. Yeah. The Atlanta Fed GDP. Now Why do we meant- care about the Atlanta Fed GDP now? What is different? I know it's higher frequency and they're trying to capture more real time versus lagging indicators. Yeah. I mean, mostly it's just. Like, if you do this right, what you do is you look at all the different stats that come out and you kind of, from that, infer what growth is going to look like. And the Atlanta Fed just kind of does a decent so tell, job all of right, it so tell us where So tell us where this stands right now. Uh, I mean, 4%, which is, which is it's early in the real quarter. Real. 4%. 4% real GDP estimate. Real GDP estimate. It's early in the quarter. It's quarter. overstated. But nonetheless, like, remember, the, the neutral rate of growth in the U.S. right now is one and a quarter percent. What does that mean? That means basically the rate of U.S. growth that doesn't require people to come into the labor market that can be met essentially with the existing, uh, you know, with, without the unemployment so rate going down. how do you jump down, to four? Going what, down. what are the things happening above and beyond that that get you there? Well, because- the thing that's, that's super interesting about the about what's going on in the economy right now is we're actually seeing a bit of reacceleration of those cyclical parts of the economy. So what you had was interest rates rose the cyclically sensitive sectors like manufacturing and housing cooled. Basically, all the all the hot the 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 froth in those markets came right off, and then we all sort of settled down. Everything settled down, and people realized that actually seven percent mortgage rates, given the tightness of housing supply, is not the end of the world. And builders came have come back into yeah. the market. Prices have started to rise again. Two thirds of demand didn't disappear. Demand it was supposed to. Yeah, it didn't. Some, yeah, demand slowed, but right. But because there's so little supply, the the home builders are able to continue to produce homes, which is the GDP element that you're seeing yeah. in there. Plus, you have the fact that uh, that prices are going up. Prices reached new highs in two thirds of MSAs uh, in in the most recent period. So that's that's a very strong picture. And then, of course, we 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 have to talk about the fact that there's a big fiscal impulse in the economy as well, which is extraordinarily unusual. Running deficits the way that we're running in an environment where unemployment rate well, it's for COVID. is secularly it's for co- low. It's for COVID. But isn't that the biggest predictor of future inflation? It's, it's like 
the demographics and all that stuff, you could see inflation coming back down and rates coming back down. But if the government keeps spending money, then that that's like the big tell for inflation, isn't is it? Is the Inflation Reduction Act the most stimulative thing that the government has done in 10 years? Yeah, well, certainly the, 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 that's funny, right? the act was definitely not uh, disinflationary. disinflationary, Okay, right? We Building infrastructure is the opposite of disinflationary. That's right. Maybe, some, you know, someday down the line. But building new roads, right, at 3.5% unemployment is incredibly inflationary, and that's exactly what we're seeing. And then all the impetus to build, you know, uh, non-housing investment, right, in order – the CHIPS Act and all that stuff, which is creating a huge amount of fixed investment into, you know, business fixed investment associated with that, stimulated by the government, you put all those things together and we're basically getting a cyclical, like a cyclical easing. Yeah. Right? It's crazy. In the midst of an economy that's about as strong as it's been in, you know, 20 years and a labor market that's as tight as it's been in 75 years. So what does the Fed do? What are they supposed to do? A different Fed chair might be more aggressive in talking to the White House and being like, okay, maybe no more new programs Yeah, I mean, until it, we put this fire it, out. It's normal if you go back to the 70s, not as extreme. It's normal for to get some fiscal stimulus, although this is pretty extreme given how good the economy is yeah. overall. I mean, the reality is that the, the Fed doesn't control the spending in Washington, and they, they have one thing that they can do, which is that they can – you know, tight monetary but, ben, but Ben's question, though, I think that's the right question. It just from like not looking at the data, it just appears that the things that we do on the fiscal side have a much bigger multiplier effect and than quicker. what the Fed is doing. And quicker. Uh, of course, of course. Well, in I mean, both that was, directions. That was the whole problem. The whole problem in the 2000s, in the 2010s, was that the zero Fed interest rates was nobody wanted the money. Best, right? They right. were just dumping money into the streets. All they needed and, was stimmies. But you can't pull and the punch ball away because what are they going to do? Raise taxes? No, no. That's like that's the solution probably to fiscal policy. But there's no way in hell that's ever going to happen. Also, fiscal policy, other than tax cuts, is rarely going to go predominantly to millionaires. Fed stimulus goes to millionaires. And what do they do with it? They just buy more treasuries. But also, they don't need to spend it. If they raise taxes to get money out of the hands of millionaires to dampen their spending, it wouldn't matter because actually it's a good segue to a chart that Bob has about there's such a disconnect. We keep talking about how strong the economy is and how people feel about the economy still. So, Bob, you tweeted most economists and coastal finance folks. You see Co that, Josh? Finance. Co coastal, coastal finance. finance. I mean, I got to say finance. Well done. Uh, get, got recession calls wrong because they didn't understand the strength of middle American Main Street. These small businesses are a big chunk of the U.S. economy, and the latest hard data from the NFIB continue to show pretty good outcomes. So the chart that we're showing is soft data, which is basically surveys, versus what is actually happening. Not how you feel, what is actually happening. And this is about as, as, as wide a gap as you've seen, especially when the economy is strong. What the hell is going on? Well, NFIB, remember, small businesses. National Federation of, of Independent, Independent Businesses, right? Businesses, yeah. You know, small businesses in America are like fifty percent of the economy. Yeah, right? and, and and a lot of the hiring too, and a lot of the a lot of the hiring, the a lot of the employment, yeah. things like that. And so everyone focuses on the earnings, but like this is what matters for how tight the labor labor markets are, because you know tight labor markets are in Peoria, not in New York. So let's tell people what this looks like. The soft data fell off a cliff in twenty twenty one. That's inflation, and kept falling, and that's people being pessimistic because of inflation and and supply channel. Is that double bottom? Joe Weisenthal <laughs> on his on but the Bloomberg. hard data kept the hard data kept rising, kept ticking, right. or didn't fall off as much. So they they survey people, they survey businesses. I'm sure you go into these small businesses. They have that NFIB sticker. I love this survey. They mail people physical 
surveys every well, month. Do they really? To this. They really do. To ten percent of their members. This is why we're anti-survey. And they're filling out, you know, the bubbles, and they basically ask two different sets of questions. Which is the first is, and what you see in the top line is basically, have you hired more people? Are you making more money? Are you raising wages? That's the hard data. That's the hard data because it's basically like, just tell me literally what you're doing over the last three months. And then they also ask a set of questions, which is basically like, do you hate Biden? How, how do you feel, <laughs> et cetera? And, and well, that, there's there's political bias. You look in yeah, 16, right. totally. it goes straight up. Of course it is. And then down, so Joe Weisenthal mentioned is, your chart on his newsletter the other yeah, day. Yeah, 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 that's he exactly said, right. He basically said, can we really trust this survey data anymore if the people answering are so politically biased that they don't, they're, what they say does not match what they do. Well, this and, is, don't tell me what's in your, don't tell me how you feel, show me what's in your portfolio. That's a Talib thing. Right. It's so true. I don't care what you say, just show me what's in your portfolio. Do we think most of the people filling out these surveys are filling them out because they're mad politically and that's why they'll fill it out? Like I'll, show, like, like, I'll show you. Five star, one star. No, but, that's a stretch. But the type of people that are inclined to answer these surveys probably lean a certain way. Or, or I mean, the, the, the this cohort is more conservative in nature. Yeah, sure. that's, it's middle that's, America. This is that's the, well known. This is the yeah. cohort so, that's buying uh, gold for their IRAs from uh, Fox Business. I was at. I would. Uh, uh, forget. <laughs> I don't gold coins. <laughs> hey, uh, what do you mean coastal? Where you, where'd you grow up? Detroit. Oh, so you oh you're a Michigan guy. Uh, I'm in Grand Rapids. You know, you're from Grand Rapids. Wait, yeah, you Grand couldn't Rapids. tell uh, by his oh, accent. Nice. Another Midwest snob. See these 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 elitists. <laughs> snob. We're the we're the I, no, flower states. Like, Another how? northern Midwestern elitist. <laughs> elitist. People have never walked on Main Street. They have no idea what it's like. <laughs> exactly. Right. They think these shiny offices is how the rest of the world lives. You know. That's just Josh, not they. So you know the, the one thing I learned I man of the living in Detroit area is one thing is they taught me how to drive because people drive way faster there. And that if you drove a Ford car there, you're getting run off the road. Mm. Like I drove a Ford Taurus there because I had to. Dude, how about I this bullshit that you're a Honda Accord guy? I don't, I don't believe it for a second. What's that highway toward the Aurora Hills Mall? What is that? Yeah, well, there's like there's a high, there's a point where like six highways come together. Okay, that's what I want to talk about. This it's is like, Josh trying to pretend that he's no, no. <laughs> I drove on that, not knowing anything. In a Ferrari? No, dude. Seriously, <laughs> I was 19. I was visiting. I was visiting. I told my driver to take a left. I was visiting my girlfriend <laughs> in college in Michigan. No, no, no. It's a five lane highway, and everyone on it is doing 120 miles an it's hour. Crazy, yes. Yeah. In pickup trucks. That's right. It's like it's like the Midwest Autobahn. It was I one of my favorite drives I've ever done. I lived there for two years done. and moved back to the other side of the state. My wife goes, "You learned how to drive." I was in a Ford Explorer. I, I was. I think I. I think I maxed it out at like ninety, and people were blowing by me on on that road. So you, Bob, you're not lying, Bob. I no. think the economy is pretty simple. Not to figure out or forecast, but just today it's pretty simple. People are spending money because people are employed, right? And until something breaks in that dynamic, we're going to be in this sort of regime. So you had a chart showing the slowing of consumer credit has put a slight drag on spending, but it never mattered much this cycle. By the way, I want to talk about consumer credit and the, the credit crunch that never came. What will make or break consumer spending is nominal income growth. All right, so we're talking, we're talking about the same thing over and over. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. It comes down to whether or not people are still making wages, right? Whether wage growth continues. If wage growth continues... We're basically kind of stuck in this equilibrium. Wasn't the Fed stuck in the equilibrium? Wasn't the Fed saying that they needed a recession, like a and for people, they were kind of implying though that they needed a recession to cool off prices, and now it turns out they didn't. So did well, they get on, it right, on, but on. still get it wrong? Like gas prices went from five dollars uh, a gallon to three dollars a gallon. That helps. Had nothing to do with the Fed. That's right. Right. You had some supply chain resolution, et cetera. Also outside their control. Nothing to do with the Fed. The structural and this this is the this is the trouble is the structural inflation pressures, which are connected to how much are we paying people versus how much they're producing, that hasn't changed much. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, it's come down. It was, you know, we saw in that first chart, that Atlanta uh, uh, wage chart, it went from 7% wages to 5% wages. So, you know, that's better than it would have been otherwise. Uh, but it's not like they've resolved that core issue. The The tightening of monetary policy hasn't done enough to to deal with that structural problem. And so what we'll see is we'll see uh, we'll see like uh, there's enough nominal income, enough nominal spending that'll kind of pop out in various places, right? So measured inflation, yeah, sure, you know, used car will go down in price, but then I'll spend more on my hotels or airfares will go down and I'll spend more on other services, right? Because what will determine the trend of inflation is that gap much more so than the, you know, the nitty gritty nuances of, you know, how exactly we account for this price versus that price. Like people have plenty of money, right? People are spending too much. The economy is too hot. We see it in a lot of different ways relative to what's needed for the Fed to meet its mandate. Well, your, your point about the inflation maintenance is I think a good one because I was re- been reading this, rereading this book lately called A Piece of the Action by Jonas Serra. It's from like the mid 90s. And he talks about it's basically how the middle class became like this powerful force in a God consumer. Access to credit. Yes, but his his point about the seventies was, you would have thought that the seventies inflation happened and people started pulling back. And he said, no, 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 people figured it out. So more women came into the workforce, and then people got went into credit card debt, and they they decided like, and they also said, well, why would I not take on more debt because inflation is good for eroding debt. So that the seventies in a weird way made people want to spend more money. And that mindset when inflation came down oh, that's interesting. helped cause the 80s. But it was it was interesting to hear that, that people just at a certain point said, screw it, I'm just going to keep spending through this. And yeah, that, my debt will get wiped away by the inflation. Yeah, and that's, that was one of the things, that's why credit card debt really ramped up then because people said, I don't care, I'm going to keep taking on more and more debt and keep spending. And I think that mentality, I think, right, that it's unless people start losing their jobs, it's going to be hard to get people to stop spending at all because they got a taste of it now. It's like, well, wait, I took 18 months off of spending. I want to keep it going even longer. I think our version of that right now, like when you go to high-end resorts in the Caribbean or you try to book like uh, hotel rooms in South Florida for Christmas, like just anecdotes from my own life. Everything's packed. Everything's booked. You can't go out to dinner in Manhattan anywhere. People that have cash and no debt are making more money than ever passively. Like you have, you just have T bills, you have CDs, you have, you just, you just have your money is gushing more money. Selling in video calls. Well, you, you had, <laughs> yeah. I was going to talk about this later, but, but you that had- that fuels more spending. Yes. And that fuels, right. so it, it's actually counterproductive to bringing down a certain type of inflation. And you're, you had a point a couple weeks ago that was basically like, we've had a handoff from low rates before and the people who took out that debt and fixed it to high yields now. Right. And you said they basically offset each other, right? Like that's right, the, the that's money right. people I'm, are making now in their is that yields. That's kind of like the sophisticated way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> With yeah. data, you know, data, charts. I do stories. A little, a little boring I'm a story in terms guy. of tone, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, nerdy. No, but, it's, but like that's a real phenomenon. Fewer Caribbean that, resorts. That, that handoff. That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah, I mean, that's the basic, that's the basic idea. Now, of course, the households who have the two different, who, who have the debt may be a little bit different than those who have the assets, but like recognize that the people who have the high cost, you know, the, the high uh, notional value mortgages, right, are the people who have lots of other assets, right? So when you think about that picture, like there are a lot of folks who have a lot of, you know, liquid assets 
borrowed at 2%, locked that in. And for them, you know, times times could not be better, right? Wages are growing it's like at utopia. five or six percent. Their debt cost is fixed for their most, you know, the thing that matters the most. Uh, and, and their investments are and booming. And their investments, their stocks are going up a ton, yeah. right? They're getting yield on their assets. I mean, pretty much the only thing that's a problem is the cars, but they're generally not financing the cars when they're doing that. And so it's it's fine. Like, it, it, and, and this kind of goes to the, the overall the overall picture in terms of the credit story, which is like, this isn't a credit cycle, right? Credit is not driving demand. Income is driving demand. So it's fine. Wage, you know, uh, interest rates rise, but it's not that big a deal because you have more than enough income in one form right. or another to pay for your $700 a month, you know, auto payment. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to have unsustainable debts right now when everybody is working. Everyone's, everyone's working and their wages are going up wages at the rates up. that they are. Uh, where do you want to go next? Let's talk about what the market is pricing. We did a lot of econ stuff. Um, all right. So you said, uh, what is the likelihood 2024 will have 12% earnings growth? Now, that's just analyst estimates, what they're expecting. And five rate cuts. <laughs> that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds tough. Uh, that is what, what do you is, think? <laughs> yeah, that is what is currently implied by the short rate and stock market. Soft landing, both 100% priced Hold on. in. The market is pricing in what? <laughs> so that's, oh, five cuts next year. So both things can't possibly. There's no way. There's no way these two things will what will come. A, a a soft landing and five rate cut rate cuts next year. Well, you so twelve twelve percent. No, you can't. Twelve percent earnings growth in the S P five hundred and five rate cuts. How would that even happen? So which one is more wrong? Well, the bond market is smart money. I don't know. What, what, I don't know about that. Well, I'm. You know, that's what they say. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that before. But I've also met people that are in the bond market, and I can't square those two things. So, all right. Uh, what do you think about this? No, I mean, the basic idea here is you can't have the type of strong growth that's being priced in right. and these type of rate cuts. Because why would they be doing the cuts? Because why would they cut? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's there's some folks who think that in a soft landing environment, you're going to have the Fed cutting. because if, it, like, if inflation, we have immaculate disinflation, the Fed will cut into that. It's like the Fed is not going to cut interest rates when unemployment is at 3.5%. Not going to happen. Right. That I mean, why? Why would so what end? What would be the goal? What would be the goal? Right. Yeah. The, we want to hit one percent. Right. Hit? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Like there's no you. reason to further stimulate an economy at secularly low unemployment. And so basically, what this is showing is that one, you know, one or both of those things is likely wrong. I think probably both of them are wrong in the sense of it's a little too bullish in terms of what's likely to happen on the equity side, on the earnings and growth side, and probably a little too bearish Has, on the bond have side. They ever, in, in have the sense have of, we ever had something like this before, though? No. No. It's unprecedented. No. There's no, you know, we're not going to have something. But this this is so emblematic of bond investors and stock investors. The right? pessimists and the optimists. Exactly. Right? Well, if you're investing in stocks, you have to lean to the optimistic side. Otherwise, what are you doing? Why are you taking risk if you don't think it's going to work so out? Is this just saying, though, that the part. yield curve is telling us that they think short-term rates are going to come down? Like the inverted yield curve, is that all the bond market is saying is that we're predicting short rates are going to fall eventually? Well, yeah, just important to recognize. All, all an inverted yield curve is is, is just a, is just pricing. There's nothing there's nothing more magical about a, an inverted yield curve other than the asset, you know, the bond market is basically saying there's going to be cuts, meaningful cuts in terms of uh, monetary policy in the future. And and that seems pretty unlikely. And I think the interesting thing for a 60-40 investor when you look at this is that this is bad all around for a 60-40 investor. Because if that growth doesn't, doesn't come for an equity investor 
stocks won't perform as, you know, stocks will underperform. And if those cuts don't come, bonds are going to underperform, right? Because what's being- what, Underperform what? Are going under, to sell off, right? Because if what ends up happening is the Fed doesn't ease the way that's currently priced in, bond, bond prices are going to go down. Right, yields are going to rise, prices are going to go down, and so what you're seeing is actually a combination of dynamics that are particularly bad for the 60. But isn't the investor. 40 in T bills right now, and that's the best place to be? Uh, I mean, sure, it, it, it some people for, might be for a while, but uh, but isn't but that- how many how many real money managers are out there saying? Let me tell you, four percent bonds, right? Never seen anything like it in my career. Right. Best but, deal out there, well, one way trade. Right, only gonna only gonna return well, you. T bill is, well, is five f- five spot seven five. Well, that's what it's, it's uh, funny to me is that talking historically, people are saying if you look at stocks relative to bonds, uh, stocks look expensive because bond yields are four percent. To what I say is four percent is still low. Like throughout the nineties, the average was like six and a half percent in the ten year, right? And so I don't think investors think about it that way in terms of relative attractiveness between stocks and bonds and say four percent I can get that. Why wouldn't I put all my money in here? I don't think allocation decisions are made like that. Yeah, well, I, I think what's happening is that people – this goes back to what we were talking about before related to the bond market and, and the risks of a sell-off – is 4% is high relative to what you've seen over the last 15 right. years. So if, if you're using recency bias, then then it is high. But that's but that's what the bond market is doing, right? And if you hadn't lived through what the bond market did in 10 and 11 and saw how badly the bond market mispriced the depression – it wouldn't be in your mind to then say, "Well, look, they could just very badly misprice." What do you think about this? Di- what do you think about this dynamic? They not on purpose, but they turned the short-term treasury market into almost like a retail investor market. Uh, so the only people excited about a a four percent thirty-year bond are insurance companies. They're locking in an offset to a liability that they know is coming due every year. That makes sense. Why aren't they taking the six? They don't want the roll risk. They'll just take the four. They know it's there. Period end of story. The the six month T bill between five and a half and six percent. We're now creating apps or existing apps are creating retail products, getting people excited and marketing T bills. That's something I've never seen in my career, and I was around in the nineties uh, when rates were much higher. That's a new phenomenon, and I don't know if it means anything in terms of the pricing in the bond market, but it's definitely a new participant. It's also a demographic thing, though, right? The boomers who are retiring have craved this yield for 15 years and it's finally here and they're going, give me all that I could, I could take, right? There, there, and there's, there's an interesting dynamic going on at the other end of the curve, the long end. Bill Ackman came out last week and said that he was shorting the 30s, meaning he's expecting yields to continue to go up. There's a great chart from Bloomberg showing uh, investor types, John Chardon, please, investor types have wildly different bets on maturities. I'm sorry, bets, different bets on treasuries. Hedge funds short, longer maturity notes, asset managers long. This is, this is an interesting tug of wait, war. Wait, what is, so the the pink is asset managers, pros. So, so professional bond managers they're buying are, the longer dated. are buying all of it. And hedge funds are saying, you dumbasses, you're about right, to get, they're selling it to them. You're yeah. gonna get run over. No, that's exactly right. Now there's always some risks in the in the futures market that you're not getting a holistic sense of what's going on. But this data does align with what we do at a limited, is we basically infer using technology what how hedge funds are positioned, and we're seeing exactly the same thing which is that hedge funds are basically as short bonds as they have been in a long time, underweight duration. And the reason why that is, is they're looking at this confluence of dynamics that we're talking about, the existing pricing and saying, you know, in one way or another, we're likely to see higher bond yields 
first before we get to a point where the economy tips over and we get into a recession. So they're betting on this this picture. You know, the smart money is basically saying we're going to have higher yields. The uh, the, the, the other money. The other money. <laughs> I don't want to piss off too much money here. <laughs> so, so, so hedge funds are bearish. I mean, so you have a great chart showing. So they're, so they're bearish because, well, this chart shows that they're betting on the 30-year rising, yep. which actually is interesting because that can be, be maybe a forecast of economic strength, but whatever. No, but these are extremes, though. But, you, you said asset managers took taking their own net bullish positions on the long bond to an all-time high. Mm. Is that right? That's in Bloomberg. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That I mean that that's what the data shows in so, terms of contracts. And and I think that that's right because if you I mean you ever flip on Bloomberg and you get a bond person in there, they say four percent yield, best yield we've seen in ages. Tough to beat that four percent yield. I mean, every, I mean, they just like line them up. They just all come so, in. So, so just for the audience, going from four percent to five percent on that with that much duration would be Messy, traumatic, yeah, pretty it would, messy. It would, be, so, it would be tough. Yeah, so so not only are hedge fund managers bearish on bonds, but they're bearish on stocks. You've got a great chart this. showing the you overlay the S and P five hundred cumulative drawdown versus the twelve month hedge fund beta to equities, and you said with the current equity beta of zero point two, hedge funds are about as bearish on stocks now as they have ever. Been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what you can essentially look at the the gold line here is is how sensitive hedge fund returns are to equity market returns, and so the lower the sensitivity, the less equity market risk that they're taking on. And this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation. Like hedge funds perform well because what they know how to do is to cut equity risk when times are tough, and that's exactly what you see in the two thousand cycle as well as the two thousand eight. But cycle. times are not tough right now. Well, it, wait a minute. These are two major bottoms. The last time hedge funds got this negatively exposed to stocks, the stocks went down 35, 40%. Right. Yeah, 50%. So, the, but then that's the beginning of 03, it looks like. And it's uh, 2018, just as the Fed is about to So, pivot. based on these last two charts, what you're saying is hedge funds are positioned for a replay of 2022. In 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 several ways, yes, that's exactly right. Where which is the a basic, bond sell off leads to a stock sell off. The bond sell off leads to the stock sell off. Imagine we get that shit again. What's that? I'm not. Do- I'm. I'm going out of town. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> it's enough already. No, listen. That's I That's exactly how they're positioned. But a big part of why they're positioned that way is because, again, connected to what's priced in, right? Because they're not. It's not just a momentum trade. It's saying what's priced in is a perfect soft landing, strong growth, low inflation, cuts in interest rates, and so even if we get moderately okay growth, if we get okay growth. It'll disappoint on the stock side, and it'll put pressure on the bond market. Awesome. As the Fed doesn't hike. And that's why I say go to that 60-40. If you're sitting there with a 60-40 portfolio today, you're basically – this constellation of dynamics puts you back to that 2022 – which brings us to which brings us to liquid alts. Let's let's take first of all, thank you, thank you for all that. Let's take like a two-second, let's take a beat and explain to us what you're doing at Unlimited. And just let's we'll talk liquid alts in general because that dynamic that you just brought out is why the wealth management industry has never been more excited about having something else in the portfolio that's not 60-40. So they all want to be now, I don't know, 50-30 and then something. And in the old days, it would just be a commodity sleeve because right. it was easy um, and it didn't work. But n- now it's much – it's a much higher level discussion with even – fairly unsophisticated RIAs 
they're all everyone's all in on alts. So it's good timing. So tell us about Unlimited and where you guys play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, un, unlimited. Yeah, I mean, what I I spent my career basically in the two and twenty business. You know, yeah, two and twenty meaning two percent fixed fees, twenty percent of of carry, which is typically how hedge funds, private equity, venture capital is structured. And I basically looked at that, and 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 my co-founder Bruce from Queens College, uh, uh, we basically looked at it and we said, look, we've got a lot of experience in this business. I bet we could create technology that allows us to look over sh over the shoulder of the managers, see what they're doing, hedge fund managers, venture capitalists, private equity uh, investors, see what they're doing in close to real time, take that understanding, translate it into long and short positions, package that in an ETF, and essentially make that available to any investor, right? Because if you're, if you're, you know, a small advisor running $100 million with, you know, dozens of clients, you don't have million dollar checks to invest in the, in the top hedge funds in the world, right? Like that, you just, you just don't have well, access to those sorts of investors. That's always been my personal argument against it and talking to clients like, if I can get you into hedge funds, they're probably not the right ones. They're not, right. any hedge fund that'll take a million dollar check is not a hedge fund you want to invest in. So, okay. That's all there is to it, right? Because the good ones don't need your money. So the space has evolved. It started with fund of funds, this idea and then like Skybridge kind of came along and said to Merrill Lynch, yes, your clients are dentists, but dentists deserve Stevie Cohen. And that was a really great pitch and it worked and they raised a ton of money. Um, but now it's evolving and you guys are doing this with ETF wrappers and that, you're eliminating a lot of layers of fees and a lot of friction. Right. I mean, most most of the 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 funds that that folks who are advisors have access to right, are negative selection, yeah. rack rate fees because you're a small-scale investor. Often there's additional fees on top of it. Platform fees. Platform fees. Marketing fees. Market, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Fees on top of fees to, on top of fees. Commissions to brokers. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, the you know, so there's been like a lot of increase in access to alternatives, but in a way that is actually bad for investors because they're getting access to bad products and they're, getting, and they're paying through the nose for it. And so what we said let is me, let me stop you though before you say what how do you define bad? Bad meaning the prior track record wasn't good. No, bad meaning investors for most most products in this like access to alternatives push that has happened are worse for investors. Investors are worse off for having those products available in the market than not having them available. Because of the, the, the because specific it, funds they could access. Because of the funds that they can access okay. All right. and the fact that they're paying extremely high fees, okay. and because they're taxable, they're paying high taxes in those structures. On top of it all. On top of Insult it all. Insult to injury. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, take, say you invest in a product that has a 10% expected return. The manager takes two and 20. The platform takes one. The advisor takes. The, advi the advisor takes one. Trading costs. And don't forget, you know, yeah. the government yeah. takes half yeah. of your profits. And now we've gone from a 10% returning asset. Everyone has been paid Right, except for the investor who's getting two percent, yeah, literally two percent net of taxes. But and he fees. gets to, he gets to walk around his backyard barbecue and, and tell his friends that risk. he's investing in hedge yeah. funds. That's you're, right. You're missing like the the experiential part of it. But then why? But but <laughs> what's well, the Yogi Bear? I would never join a club that would have me as a member. Yeah. I, I I was I worked for in the endowment space for a number of years, and I was in a, like a billion dollar fund, and even at that level. We could not get access to the best to the hedge funds, ones, right? And, and I, if, if you're not in the top, I may name it number twenty percent or whatever it is, you're right. It's it's pointless. To okay, be in so them. so you guys so you guys saw that conundrum and, and we basically said, said, look, create 
we've we've managed money and you know we've built the proprietary strategies in these funds. We know what they're doing. We can build technology and it's been a lot of advancement in terms of the technology that we can build to allow us to look over the shoulder of the managers, see what they're doing in close to real time. And then we can take that and translate it into at long and short positions uh, in, you know, in liquid securities that could back an ETF. And the benefit of that is one, we could charge a lot less. Right, because you know we're using technology instead of having to charge two and twenty. John, chart on ag- aggregate AUM by fee. I mean, these are these are wild charts. This is crazy and number shit. two is we can do it also in the ETF wrapper, which you know I probably don't have to convey to all of you why the Tax ETF wrapper is the way to go. Tax yeah. efficient, liquid, transparent. Well, so you you're replicating existing strategies or existing managers. That's right. We're replicating of an ETF wrapper. We're replicating the. The gross of fees returns of the, you know, we're seeking to replicate the gross of fees returns of the aggregate hedge fund industry. That's the mission. And that's so the mission. That's the tracking error that you're trying to minimize. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing is, you know, hedge fund managers are pretty good, right? Pre- you, before fees. Before yeah, fees, before tax. So what are we looking at here? Well, so here's the thing is, you know, I'm sure uh, many advisors who might be listening to this, their eyes glaze over like, thank you for talking about liquid not, not my audience. Those products- no, no. My have, audience is, they want to hear their shit. Those products in general have sucked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, decades of sucky product. Yeah. And let's just boil down to why we've We've, had- o- we've only written a thousand collective, collectively a thousand blog posts. Do you think that's, this. do you think the biggest part of that is not just the fees that it's hard to, for some of these funds to quantitatively track those? Or, or do you think that? Well, I think there, there's a couple issues. One, the fees are way too high. Yeah. Right. This is this is crazy that the fees. The you know. Let's describe this. You're saying most liquid alt fees are too damn high, but there are good ones if you look for low fees and high alpha share. For the oh, why didn't I think of that? Low <laughs> fees and high alpha. Yeah, that's what I should. But I so mean, it's more. Most of the fees right? are paying three and a half percent. Is that fixed or is that all in? Fixed plus okay. an amortized load. But it's hard to find high alpha, and even harder to find it. That's not three and thirty. Like it's hard. That's right. But okay. Here's the problem: is if you're charging 300 basis points of effective fees for the small investor, that's insurmountable. That's insurmountable. You can't get it, no matter how good the manager is. You but can't. But wait, there's more. And to be clear, and okay. to be clear, the managers are bad too. <laughs> 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 and the reason why that is, let me let me just let me John, just next <laughs> let me just make it, you know, boil it down. If you were good enough. All, most of these strategies are proprietary strategies. They're not replication strategies. They're people making their own bets, right? And if you were good enough to make bets in markets, why would you be running a mutual fund? No, you'd be running your own money. You'd be running and your own equity long short fund and charging two and 20. Yeah. So we've got the worst of active managers charging these ridiculous fees. And the, and the outcome is that you get very bad outcomes for the investor. The thing that's incredible about it is no one seems to – connect the skill of the manager to the fees, right? And that's because most of these products that have been successful have basically been marketing schemes. So here, I mean, the top chart basically shows you gross alpha. So that's basically just saying how much, you know, how much are these managers delivering relative to just investing passively in the markets? That's on the x-axis. On the y-axis is the fees. You would expect good managers to earn higher fees. Unrelated. That's wild. It's all over the place. Related. Have you seen Michael's numbers? (laughs) I'm just saying. There's there's something good. There's something good taking place. It's all over the place. So then you also show the best managers should also have the highest AUM, but it's totally related. Totally unrelated. Totally unrelated. And I can I can appreciate if you're an advisor. Another axis that's like Iris own speaking gigs. But wait, but just for the audience, we're looking at AUM versus 
alpha of a 60-40 net. And it's it's there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no there's signal. There's no relationship. Yeah. But imagine you're you're a, a small-scale advisor. How do you figure out you who can. the good advisors are? Because the BlackRock person walks into your into your office and says, hey, I got a fund that's got $5 billion in it. Isn't this a good idea? It must be great. It must be great. Five billion. But, right. you know, like. Yeah. You can't. You know, charging 300 uh, basis points and delivering no net out. All the fir- all the firms have this issue. Like JP Morgan wants to give hedge fund like product access, wants to give their investors, if they want it, access to alternatives, liquid alternatives. And it's noble to want to do that. Absolutely. It's, it's risk. Why like they they torture themselves to do this. So it's not like it's all upside. So they want to do that. The thing is, in order to do that at scale, it's gonna have to be a $30 billion hedge fund. That's right. Highbridge. Now, you might take that same hedge fund and look back 15 years and it has an amazing track record. Most of that track record was built when it was $300 million. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we could we could go on on that. Like, how many of these multi-manager funds claim to have two sharp ratios, zero beta? Yeah. You Couldn't know, earn them at the current size, though. And no earn way. them with a $500 million track record. I mean, and now they got $50 billion in them. We're not going to name names, but that track record is irrelevant. So, Bob, it's a, yeah. it's a difficult space. I think even the people in the space would agree. I mean, you For can't sure. disagree. So your mousetrap, though, um, like your, your, your idea is if we get the fees low enough that they're not insurmountable and we replicate what the better funds are doing to the best of our ability, it's not perfect – but it's way better than the industry standard. That, that's exactly right. Like, okay. There's no you should more, hire me to explain th- this. Exactly. To exactly. Okay. Uh, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no more durable alpha than being cheap. When did you launch? October. Okay. Now, when you do start crushing it, are you going to raise fees? Or no. okay. So this is going to be the product. No, no. I mean, my my goal would be that we should actually be bringing fees down. Don't do that. Not yet. As we as you gotta we hire more AUM. people though. Give yourself a runway. You gotta seriously if it works. No, I know. But I mean that's that's the idea is that if you start to get to scale, if this is a ten billion dollar type, you know how much money is in traditional hedge funds right now? Three? Uh, five trillion. Five trillion. Five trillion. And to your point, the best hedge funds that get to that level and then they have all this asset they sh- they have scale and they should be able to lower fees, but they never would they never because they have the track they, they never will. Right, also, in, in t- that world, lowering fees denotes lack of quality. Right, like you don't want to you don't want to send that signal to your investors. What's is that a Griffin good or a Giffen good or a something good? Ve- Veblen good. That's uh, a, Ken, a Ken Griffin good. Yeah, that's that's a Ken good. Griffin good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at you, this guy's clever. All right, uh, we got to move because it's, I can't believe we're how fast the time went. We're keeping. We're going to keep him longer. No, I mean we already are, we already kept him. All right, let's do this real quick. I can keep going. Let's do this real quick. 13% of crypto hedge funds have shut down so far this year. Understandable. The reasons for the closures, weak performance and difficulties in accessing banking services, both true. Furthermore, crypto funds generated on average about 15% returns in the first half of 2023. Bitcoin is up 77% over the same period. I mean, that's, that's what are they doing in 2022? I don't know, but probably not great considering how many lawsuits and arrests there have been. I'll just no, guess I'm just saying, I'm just it wasn't their best year ever. Returns. It's tough 97 of the 700 existing crypto hedge funds tracked um, have closed in 2023. The FTX collapse obviously played a, a big role in that. The ones with the market neutral strategies performed the worst, generating a six and a half, six point eight percent return for the first half of this year. This thing with the hedge funds, my point is it's remarkably consistent across asset classes. Even in crypto, 
the the industry is delivering 15%. You could have just bought Bitcoin. Like it's the same. You could say it with credit. You could say it with stocks. It's just a tough business to try to outsmart the markets. I mean, you're all trying the time. to outsmart everybody. It's hard. Whatever whatever the asset is, it's hard. It's always it's it's always gonna be very you're hard. Saying I'm I know something that everybody else is mispricing. It's tough. Repeatedly. Yeah, it's tough. Repeatedly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh I wanted to Market wanted to, neutral in crypto just sounds like a market bear neutral trap. in crypto is what do you even I don't what know. is the point of life? I don't. I don't I, that doesn't. That's an oxymoron. I don't. I don't get uh, that. You don't have to like have a strong opinion about this. Um, I thought this Wall Street Journal story about Two Sigma was interesting, and it's two founders that have been at war with each other, but neither one will leave. Um, and you probably you're laughing as though you know some inside stuff here. I don't know anything about all them right. in particular. They I, all right. So I get it. I, I don't know the guys personally at all. It's a seven billion dollar fund. They uh, a sixty billion dollar fund. They mint money. The two founders have the two votes. There's basically two votes. So there's no tiebreaker here. One of them's going through a divorce. Uh, the wife is going to get billions of dollars and maybe the, the vote. <laughs> I don't really fully understand the issue. But just generally speaking, we were talking about the culture of Bridgewater before. They've now lasted long enough where they're like one of the older firms in the, in the industry. Um, this firm's been around for a while too. Somehow it keeps going. I keep hearing about how important culture is. Here you have a firm that actually had an SEC filing telling the government and investors, quote, we are unable to make basic management decisions. And yet the portfolio is fine. The fund is fine. Nobody's leaving. So maybe like culture is not the most important thing if something like this could exist. Uh, I think that Thoughts? Is, that the uh, the benefits of a systematic uh, approach, it's right? It's another systematic it's firm another like systematic Bridgewater. Firm and, and when you do that, you know, there can be a lot of – drama on the outside. And as long as the people, you know, who are responsible for running the money are sitting there making sure the trades get done yeah. uh, and the money gets managed appropriately, like, you know. So they're, they're systematic on the inside and on the outside, it doesn't, it almost know, doesn't matter. It's, it's, it can be chaos, right? Okay. All who right. gets the 3% mortgage in this divorce? Don't you remember, it used to be stay together with the kids. Isn't it stay together for stay the 3% mortgage, mortgage now? Uh, I don't know. They seem to be ticking along. This has been going on for a long time and uh, no no issues. So maybe systematic is the way to go after all. What do you think? I think, you know, it takes a lot of, a lot of uh, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing because it also means you can spend a lot of, people can spend a lot of time yes. on the drama and the conflict. Yeah, it's systematic. Because it's plenty systematic. of time for plenty uh, of time. political infighting. Right. So you can, you can waste a whole heck of a lot of time uh, doing that stuff. Fair enough. Did you have fun on the show today? It was great. All right. Yeah. I thought you crushed it. Uh, we're going to turn on the re recording in a little while. I just wanted you to warm up a little bit and just get a sense of, you know, the give and take. But you feel good now? I feel great. Let, I right. can do this for another we, hour. We too. do this thing called favorites to end yeah. the show where we tell the listeners uh, what they might be missing. Books, TV shows, movies. Let me start. Podcasts. Michael, why I'll don't start you start? Today. So I listened to Animal Spirits yesterday. That's a podcast. That's, that's a podcast for me and Ben. Kid. His favorite is his own podcast. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I haven't listened to our show. Do you still listen every week? Uh, occasionally. There's no so, way you'll be playing that. I haven't. I used to listen for the first like five years. I listened to every single episode and I haven't listened to them like a year. Maybe. We're pretty good. <laughs> unbelievable. We're pretty good. Have you ever in your life encountered That's a good like podcast. This? It's fun. I had fun. Uh, so I recommend that if you haven't listened. Michael um, re recommends himself. Have you heard the editing on it? I mean, yeah, the editing is The editing is amazing. Uh, okay, but in all seriousness, and I am serious about Animal Spirits, uh, Amazon Prime has a documentary called Destination NBA, a G League story. 
Oh, I want to watch Which that. is great. Did you so, watch the whole thing? Yeah, it's an hour and a half. Uh, Scoot Henderson is heavily involved. This is guy Gabe York who is struggling to make it to the league and it's just... Is well, this Bill, Bill Simmons? He was an executive producer. Uh, if you're a Looks basketball fan, fan, sports fan, it was great. Great, guys, great, great. Are you a bas- basketball fan at all? Yeah, uh, last, last time I was into basketball was uh, the Bad Boys. in the 90s. Oh, the Bad right. Boys. Yeah. Wow. Not so, even Ben Wallace. One of the most underrated teams in history. They got sandwiched in between the Lakers and the Celtics and the Bulls. I know. They beat Jordan. They beat Magic. They beat Larry. They beat everybody. Yeah, yeah. They right. could have had three or four titles. They were great. But they didn't. Ben, have you brought us a favorite today? Uh, so, wife and I finished Outer Range on Amazon Prime. Mm. I'm a big Josh Brolin guy going back to his Goonies days. Yeah, yeah. And it's Yellowstone meets sci-fi. Okay. And where, is, where, where do you watch this? What? It's on Amazon Prime. It gets a little weird. Say it again. Outer range? Outer range. Okay. Like outer space, outer range, right? Uh, it's Yellowstone with a sci-fi element, and it's bizarre, but in a good way. Okay. We finished the first out. season, and I can't wait for the second season now that the first season's done. When, was it, when did it originally come out? It's a while, like over a year ago. It just took a while. I've because What's of your the, favorite Brolin performance outside of Goonies? He's been in a lot of good shit in the last Thanos, 10 years. Gotta be obviously. No Country for Old Men, right? No Country for Old Men. He's 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 like the best part of the movie. He plays a kind of a similar character uh, in this. Sicario. Yeah. He's I, great. He's good. But the way he rode the bike in Goonies when he's holding on to the side of the car, right? Yeah. He saves the day. He's the man. I mean, they would never have found One-Eyed Willie's treasure without the, the heroic. <laughs> Wait, was Josh, of Josh Brolin, Brolin in uh, Wall Street with Shia LaBeouf? Yeah, yeah right? he was. Yeah, he was, he was, he was the, the bad guy. Yeah, he was bad guy. He's the best part of the, one of the worst movies ever made. Pretty bad. So, all right. Well done. Uh, Bob, ha- have you a favorite for us? I guess. I mean, this is going to be pretty pretty nerdy, right? We'll see. Uh, I'll be the judge of that. This American Life. Okay. I mean, NPR? Pretty nerdy, right? Well, you're Midwestern. Isn't that a I, Midwestern thing? That's this American Life? Chicago. Yeah. You know, driving around in the uh, in the old Pontiac Bonneville. Yeah, was, yeah. was there a specific episode? With my dad. Yeah. I, just, uh, two episodes ago, I uh, just can't quit you. It was about a guy who was trying to quit smoking. Amazing, amazing story. Uh the intersection of science. There's all this pop science about how to quit smoking. I'm rooting for tobacco in this People, in this people have... Wait, how did he quit? Did he die? Uh, no, well... No, he no. lost. He he struggled. He struggled. But it's pretty amazing. So it's an uplifting... Okay. It's, it's a really uplifting tale <laughs> about how, if you... About that experience. Uh, and about how pseudoscience can make lots of money and is just totally useless. Okay. Feels Spe- like a speaking a, a speaking of, of the world today. In a, in a similar vein, one of my favorite albums to come out this year, uh Post Malone's new record came out 2 weeks ago. That's about as cool as This American Life. So I think he's trying I think he's going to kill himself. I'm really I'm like ju- oh, oh, this come is the on, album this dude. is the album cover. I know some of this is is shtick. Oh, you think? Do we have any more or there's no need really. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So he lost a lot of weight, which is great. Uh, I saw him live in Austin last fall, and he was awesome on stage. There's no DJ. There's no band. It's just him on stage in a spotlight. Wow. And the crowd loved it, and he has so many hit songs, like maybe 20 hit songs that everyone in the audience knows every word to. He's like really – his music, though, has gotten very self-destructive. So he put out like 17 songs on this album. Every one of them is about like smoking butts till the sun comes up and drinking – and falling on the floor and being hungover. And I'm like mildly, cons- I'm a little bit concerned unless it's all performative and he's like at, at a Jamba Juice, you know, all day. So, but anyway, the music is great. And uh, I, 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 just, I thought like maybe it's just all an act and he's not quite as far gone as it makes him sound. So here's to, 
Any any reaction at all from anyone? Sure, I'll jump in. I I uh, I don't know much about Post Malone, but I know you don't listen to a lot of music but, that's come out since 1991. Right, that's true. No, right. no, 90, 1998 was my cutoff date. Okay, uh, but I I heard Post Malone. He was on Howard Stern a couple of years ago, doing uh, Nirvana, and he was yeah, f- amazing, like super talented. Uh, I want to mention the Jones Beach Amphitheater. Have you ever got come to a show at Jones Beach yet? No, but he showed me it before. I texted I texted Josh on Saturday. I said, "How is the show?" And he goes, it's good. The weather was great too. And I said, I meant the CNBC show. Yeah. Oh. So I don't. Who I'm did not you like see? A, I'm not a Goo Goo Dolls fan. Yeah, that's okay, dude. No shame. Admit it. I'm no. I'm really slide. Not. You love it's slides. Oh. I left early. It's really not my thing. <laughs> uh, but my wife and all her friends, you know, and Google they love are, it. No offense, anyway. That's super lame. <sighs> they have really, they have really good songs, but it's not my scene. You're, you're checking an, out Matchbox Twenty. Yeah, that's a nostalgia yeah, yeah, exactly. show. It's a nostalgia it's not, show. Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent what it is. But it's the important part is. We're all in our late 30s uh, to late 40s. Our wives love it. To ha- see them have as much fun as they're having, who gives a shit? Get get past yourself. That's what I tell myself in the mirror. Are you playing this to show? I- no. So it was cool, but the amphitheater is the star. It doesn't matter who's on stage, honestly. It's really beautiful. Like we went, it was 75 degrees. It was breezy. There was no humidity. The moon is out. There's waves crashing all around. There's boats in the background. And it's they get huge uh, acts. So I just uh, I thought I'd throw that out oh, there. Oh, there it is. Let me see. That's where we is, live. So I was sitting right, literally <laughs> right there. Can you pull uh, your jet ski up right there? You no, can't. It's in, Zach's it ba- it's in Zach's Bay, but you can't get that close with a boat or a jet ski. That's an amazing view. there's like police yeah, in the amazing. water. I'm, so, but, I'm at, but they get, like, we saw last summer, we saw Chris Stapleton there. They had like a hundred thousand people. Almost nobody had tickets. I saw live they and just Bush were walking around together. I've seen Aerosmith here. I've seen like big stuff. Anyway, I saw Zeppelin there. Shout to uh, Jones Beach. All right, that's it for me. Hey guys, make sure if you love the show, ratings, reviews on your favorite podcast platform. What do you got? We we have one. We have a good review. Oh, uh, let's do it. It's from Word Scammed. I'm about to turn into a pumpkin. So <laughs> and, and they, they uh they were one of the three best podcasts of any genre. I've tried over a dozen financial podcasts and countless podcasts of other genres. Almost all financial podcasts are hard to listen to because they're boring. TCAF and its sister podcast, Animal Spirits, are different. You see that in my sister podcast. What's up? (laughs) They are are entertaining (laughs) while being educational. The Compound and Friends and Animal Spirits are the two best financial podcasts, bar none. Told you. They are both fantastic. Did I not say they, it? They say a lot Michael's more, but I'm going to skip to the end. The last thing they say is, I listen to many podcasts and I'm constantly looking for more to add to my rotation. There are only three podcasts in all genres that I've religiously listened to for years. A lot of genre talk here. I love this guy. <laughs> Bill Simmons, Animal Spirits, and The Compound of Friends. Wow. They are my wow. Mount Rushmore of podcasts. Wow. I can't Thank express you. how much I appreciate the Thank effort you. these Thank guys you. put into the show. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to let Bob get out of here. Uh, but I just want to tell you, like, you have been an incredible guest. I hope Thanks you Thanks for having me. This is fun. Come, will you come back? Yeah, of course. Yes? They're amazing. Right. Thank what you. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> Bob, you're awesome. And I want to wish you all the best of luck with Unlimited. I love the idea of what you're doing. HFND. Gonna, I'll shout it out. Check it out. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in and, and learn more about it. But just thank you so much for awesome. coming Thanks by. Thanks for having really, me. We really appreciate it. Ben. Great. Thank you, man. You going, you going out for a show with Michael tonight? Go to see some comedy. Comedy cellar. A little comedy? Yes. We're All actually right. going to the Fat Black Pussycat, but same thing. Yeah, All right, enough. that's enough of that. All right, listen, hey, uh, hey, compounders, make sure ratings, reviews, like us, tell your friends. We appreciate you. See you next week. All right. Wow, what a show. Ooh.